Today from Luke chapter 2, pay close attention, this is God's holy word. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you that as every year we turn back toward these things that we know so well, but every time we hear them, they're a joy and they're refreshing and we never get tired. We never get tired of hearing how you broke into the darkness and you shined the light and you gave us your son, Jesus, our Savior. So today we rejoice in him. Father, cause every heart to rejoice in him this Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. People of God, it's really difficult for us to imagine how terribly dim the world was in the ages before we harnessed the power of electricity. Before, before we had electricity running to every building and every house, the world was an incredibly, incredibly dark place. Even the best candle that you have in your house gives off barely a hundredth of the illumination of a 100 watt white light bulb. And, and we don't use candles for anything other than decoration or to look pretty or to smell good. We don't, we don't use them for light. Last night I went into the dining room and I, I lit just one candle on the wreath on our dining room table. And the light from the neighbor's uh, Christmas lights outside lit up my dining room more than that one light. We don't have an appreciation for how little light there was in the, the world before electricity. When, when you open up your refrigerator door, you shine more light on your eggs and milk 
than, than existed in most homes before the 19th century. That's more light in your refrigerator than was in most houses. The world at night for almost all of human history was a very dark place. So dark, I'm not sure that any of us can fully appreciate it, but every once in a while, we'll see descriptions of the level of darkness that people were very much accustomed to. One man named Nominee Hall living in the 18th century, he was a guest to a Virginia plantation and he wrote in his diary how luminous and splendid the dining room was during a banquet. How luminous and splendid, he wrote in his diary. There were seven candles in the dining room, four on the table and three others around the room. And to him, this was a marvelous blaze of light. Around the same period in England, an artist named John Harden, he produced a series of drawings reflecting family life in his home. And a typical drawing was of four members of the family sitting around a table sewing or reading, or working on little projects by the light of a single candle. And in his drawings, there's no sign of frustration or desperation as people try to get a little bit of light to fall on their page or on their needlework. People put up with dim light because they didn't know anything else. We assume that people who lived before light bulbs, we assume they went to bed at sundown because there was nothing else to do. <laughs> you, know, you can't do anything in the dark. But this assumption is not sustained by history. Visitors to London in the 1700s remarked that stores were open to 9 or 10 o'clock at night. Now, there are no shops open without uh, shoppers. And so if the stores are open at 9 or 10 at night, you know, people are out and around. It was usual in high society to serve supper at, at 10 o'clock at night and for guests to stay through midnight. Balls went to two or three in the morning, after which people would go to supper. That, that doesn't mean, however, that getting around through city streets in the dark was any easier for them. If clouds obscured the light of the moon, people would grope their way through the darkness and often would tell stories of running face first into pillars or posts or buildings. And that wasn't the only danger in the dark. The cover of darkness made it easier for thieves to do their work. They could knock people down. They could cut them or stab them. They could go through their pockets or bags and leave them for dead. Darkness was where all manner of evil deeds could go by undetected and where not only predatory people were on the prowl, but also predatory animals that could attack you or could attack your children or they could attack your, your animals, your livestock, if they were not watched and protected. So when we read the Bible, we get this extensive commentary on the contrast between light and dark, especially with the coming of Jesus. In John 1, we read, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And later in John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now we hear those things and we say, oh yes, light, light's good. It's good to have light. And Jesus is light and I, I get it. It's, it's great. But in an electric age, we don't have a full appreciation for the preciousness of light, nor do we have a full appreciation for the oppressiveness of darkness. We almost never find ourselves in a place of absolute total darkness or a place where light 
is not at your fingernips. Now, if you have a phone in your pocket, you have a flashlight, right? How many times are you kind of looking for something in the dark and you've got a, you've got a light right there at your hands, at your fingertips? But if you can, for just a few minutes today, put yourself in a pre-electric world of darkness and into the place of the shepherds that we just sang about and that we'll sing about again, uh, Put yourself in the place of the shepherds watching their flocks by night when the angels appeared to them on the night of Jesus' birth and the glory of the Lord shone around them. You know, shepherding was not a job for the elite or the wealthy. Nobody wanted to grow up and say, you know, I, I'd kind of like to be a shepherd when I, when I get older. Uh, rich men, uh, their sons didn't aspire to be uh, uh, shepherds. This was not a job for the wealthy. Most shepherds were peasants. They were unskilled laborers. They were hired by more wealthy landowners to tend to their livestock. Now, some small family farms had their flocks of sheep and they would have a son watch the animals like David did for his father's flocks. But for those with bigger herds, they would hire shepherds to tend to the, the sheep. Shepherds were really not much of anything when it came to their position in society. They were hired hands. Think of them sort of like cowboys, but not in the romantic sense when we think about cowboys or this, this wonderful romantic life. That no, was dirty, nasty, filthy, boring work. They, their job was to keep the herds moving around to grass and water, make sure these sheep are fed, make sure they get water, and defend them from predators, defend them from thieves. That's your job. So occasionally you may have to run off a wild animal or you may have to defend the sheep from a thief, but largely the work of a shepherd most long nights was tedious and boring unless you kept yourself occupied with some other pursuit. Maybe you taught yourself to play the harp or the flute, or maybe you became a, an amateur astronomer as you looked up at the stars. They were looked down on by, uh, by the, the society because they had a reputation for ignoring boundary markers. They had a terrible reputation as they guided their sheep around. They wouldn't pay attention to where my owner's land ended and the next man's began. And so they were a general nuisance as they, as they moved around. One source says that they were considered absolutely unreliable and shepherds could not give their testimony in law courts, that, that if a shepherd saw something, his, his witness would be uh, denied. Which is interesting because the announcement of Jesus' birth comes first not to noblemen and not to kings and not to the religious leaders of Israel, but the announcement of Jesus' birth comes to the bluest of the blue collar. It comes to those you know, who, who don't even have factory jobs. It's, it's McDonald's workers and, and, and Walmart store uh, stockers to whom the, the, the message first comes. This is, this is Jesus appearing and, and the message of, of his coming uh, to guys who nobody would trust ordinarily, those who hear first about the nativity of the Savior. Remember also in this day, women were not considered to be reliable witnesses, yet it is to women that Jesus first appears after his resurrection. So this is always striking to me that if the gospel writers were making things up as they go along, the last people that they would write into the story to be witnesses of these things would be shepherds and women. And yet what do we find in the gospel? but shepherds and women attesting to his birth 
and to his resurrection. It is upon those of low degree, the humble, those without any station or reputation, that the glory of the Lord shines. It's to them that the Lord comes first. On this night, as these shepherds watch their flocks, they're staring at the sky, the angel of the Lord stands before them in the brilliance of the glory of the Lord. The light shines around them and they are terrified. As you can imagine, they would be having their, light, their eyes adjusted to the darkness of the night suddenly blinded by the glory of the Lord. You've been driving at night and the oncoming car has his high beams on and, and, and you're momentarily blinded by this or you've been asleep and somebody comes into the room and flips the light on and you can't see and you're disoriented and you're bewildered. Uh, these guys are standing around in near total darkness in the stillness and the quiet of the middle of the night and suddenly... They're flooded in light and the great roaring sound of a heavenly army of angels appears before them. Luke says they were greatly afraid. You bet they were greatly afraid. They were out of their mind. What is happening? This has never happened before. We've never seen this. And so the angel says, as angels are wont to do, the first things out of their mouth is always, do not be afraid. We read about a host of angels and we, we think uh, we, we may be imagining the angels we've seen in art, maybe, you know, fat baby angels or effeminate asexual Caucasians with long blonde hair. Uh, that's, not, that's not an angel. The word host, when you read the word host, what's that, a, what's that another word for? What is the word host? The word host is army. Whenever you see the word host in the scriptures, your mind needs to say, okay, army. Host means army. So what is Lord of hosts? He's the Lord of armies. And what is a host of angels? That's an angelic army. And the fact that they're always terrifying and the first thing they have to say is do not be afraid indicates me that they look like fighters. They look like they're armed to the teeth with priceless armor. These great, scary, bearded warriors shining. Have you ever seen the uh, Maori tribe of uh, southeast uh, 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 the, the South Pacific, um, are they New Zealand Islanders? Sarah, you know, okay. Have you ever seen the haka they do? The, the New Zealand rugby team, uh, before they take the field, they do this horrible, terrifying war march. Look it up on the internet. Uh, maybe first look at it and then maybe invite your small children. It's terrifying. It's scary. They bare their teeth and their tongues and their eyes. This intimidating, roaring war dance. Multiply that by a thousand. And that's what the shepherds see. This great, scary, hairy, bearded, armed army of angels appearing before them. This aggressive army of angels is now moving in and establishing a beachhead here with these shepherds, declaring that the liberating forces have arrived. The liberating forces have arrived, and they, you are now going to be free from your oppressors, the tyrants of darkness, the tyrants of death, the tyrants of sin, the, the minions of Satan. Their time is done. The, the deliverer is here. Here these angels come to announce that the great mighty king, the conquering general, has been born. And so they say, there is born to you this day a savior who is Christ, Messiah, the anointed one, the Lord. The word savior 
and we'll go into this a little bit more tomorrow morning, uh, the word savior means deliverer. Caesar Augustus was known at this time through the world as savior, but the angels announced, no, there's a, there's a bigger and better savior. There's another deliverer. They also say he's Christ the Lord. Lord was a popular title for the Roman emperor. He is the supreme benefactor who provides for you like a God. But the angels say, here is the real Caesar. Here is the real God. Here is the real king and deliverer and Lord, the God of Israel. And the angel says, now, if you want to, you can go into town and you can see him and you can find him. He's a baby. He's wrapped in cloths and he's lying in a manger. And at this statement, when, when the angel, the lead angel says this, the great heavenly army becomes a choir who shatter the stillness of the night with their song. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The peaceful evening that they thought that they were enjoying, the quiet and the stillness and the darkness of the night is, is shattered by the ear-splitting, uproarious song, this, this war chant belted out by these fierce warrior angels, illuminated by the blinding radiance of the glory of the Lord. This light that comes to shine in the darkness of this night reminds us of the first light of creation. Remember that at creation, Darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was brooding over the waters. And God said, let there be light. The only source of light is God himself in the beginning. And before God introduces light, before God says, let there be light, there is only darkness. And throughout the scriptures, when God appears, he is shrouded by the brightness of his glory. Psalm 104 says, Yahweh, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty who cover yourself with light as a garment. What are, what are God's clothes made of? They're made of light. God, God shrouds himself with light. His glory hovered over Israel in the pillar of cloud and of fire. So, from creation forward, light is brought down from heaven into earth. He lights the fire on the altar. He lights the fire at Elijah's altar. Fire comes down from heaven and lights the earth. And every time we enjoy the light that comes from the heavens to the earth, we're to be reminded, yes, this is where light comes from. We don't, we don't manufacture, we don't generate light. Light, real light comes from from God. Light is energy. Light is warmth. Light illuminates our way. Light shows us where to walk and where not to walk. Light shows us what is coming. It reveals dangers ahead of us. And light is necessary for God itself. God gives us these machines called plants that turn light into food. And we eat that, or we eat animals who eat that. But in any case, it is light that gives life in a, very, in a very real sense. Light and life go together, and darkness is always paired with death. Darkness is full of terrible things. There's a part in all of us that is afraid of the dark, and absolute darkness can drive you to madness. If you've ever taken a cave tour, and you get down into the 
uh, darkest part of the cave and, and they flip off the lights, it only takes about 30 seconds for your mind to start seeing things and for you, for you to start to hallucinate. Light can drive, I'm sorry, darkness can drive you to madness, but who's afraid of the light? There's nothing scary about the light. The, the only people who love darkness are those who prefer darkness because their deeds are evil. Light, light doesn't allow you to get away with much. Light doesn't allow you to sneak around. Everyone wants the light. So the light that shined on the night of the birth of the Savior, the light that shone around the shepherds, was the first taste of the ever-increasing kingdom of light and life. God says again on this night with the angels, God says again, let there be light. And his light breaks into the darkness of the world. Matthew's gospel uh, quotes the prophet Isaiah and, and says, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And this is the way about light. Light wins every time. In a conflict between light and darkness, put your money on light. Light always wins. The darkness has no defense against the light. Darkness can't progress. Darkness can't advance. The only way you can make a room darker is by snuffing out the light. You, you can't go into a lit up room at night and say, wow, it's too bright in here. Let me open up a window and, and let some of the dark in. It, it doesn't work that way. You can't let the dark in like you do during the day when the room is dark. You say, let's let some light in. We have flashlights that shine, but we don't have flash darks. It's not like I could, uh, could come up with something that would make shadows here and shine shadows around. That's not the way darkness works. Darkness always retreats before the light. The light advances. The light penetrates and obliterates the darkness, and the light exposes everything that is in the dark. That's what the kingdom of God does. That's what the kingdom of light does. Therefore, Paul says in our epistle reading this morning from Ephesians 5 that John read earlier, Paul says, don't participate. Don't have any fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, shine the light on them. He says, in so many words, communion with darkness is fruitless. He, he says it's unfruitful. It's sterile. It doesn't give birth to anything of value. And, and, and this is our consolation. I said it last week, and I'll say it again this week, that we don't despair because there's no future in evil. There's no future in the works of wickedness. There's no future in darkness. Paul says these are the unfruitful works of darkness. That means they're sterile. They have no offspring. They have no, they have no uh, uh, prognosis for, uh, good prognosis for the future. There's, there's nothing, no more expectation. And that's certainly all this wickedness that we see around us. Both, both the sexual revolution and the transsexual revolution are both by definition, sterile. <laughs> they are sterilizing and they are sterile and they are unfruitful. So just as darkness is rebuked by the light, the works of darkness are exposed by the shining light of judgment. Paul continues after that, he says, he says, expose them for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light 
For whatever makes manifest is light. Uh, if you've watched the news and you've been paying attention, there's been a lot of talk lately about secret things, covered up things, shameful things, things that were formerly hidden. Now they're being brought where? They're being brought to light. That's, that's what we say. It's, it's, it's being brought out into the daytime. It's being brought to light. They're being exposed. Things, as Paul says, things that are shameful even to speak of. Children, as you grow in wisdom and as you grow in discernment, you have to ask yourself, is this thing that I love, this thing that I'm setting my affections on, is it made of light or is it made of shadow? Is this something that, that, that flourishes and shines and glitters in the light of day or is it something that I'm so ashamed of that really I've got to hide it to enjoy it? All glorious things capture light and they reflect light, right? Oil is glorious because it, it, it shines and it shimmers, gems, gold, silver, these things all reflect light. Uh, silver hair is glorious because it reflects light better, right? We all better say yeah because we're all, we're all getting some of that one day if you don't have it yet. And if you lose all your hair and you have just a bald head, light bounces off of that too and that's glorious as well. <laughs> things that reflect and, and, and play with light are glorious. But things that are dull and, and things that look better in shadow, uh, are, these things are not, these are not glorious. And so the question I'm asking you is this thing that I love, is this thing that I enjoy, is it something that I can bring out into the living room and enjoy and talk about with my family in the middle of the day? Or do I need the cover of darkness to enjoy it? Do I need a shroud over it? Do, do I need the benefit of erasing my internet history to enjoy this thing? If the light shines on it, does it become more reflective and more glorious? Or if the light shines on it, does it look nasty? You see all the gross scabs and nasty crust on it and the corruption. You see how sick it is. What, what does Jesus say in John 3? Um, he says, this is condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians as well. When things are brought out of the darkness, they receive the light. The light exposes all the flaws and the filth and the imperfections and they reflect the light. It's the only way we can see anything is because it reflects light. In the light, Paul says, things become light. So, so not only is the darkness rebuked and pushed back, but when the hidden things are exposed by light, they, if they are to remain, if they're not consumed by the light, they reflect and join the light. When the light of God's illuminating word and the light of his illuminating spirit, when it rebukes our sins, the things we kept secret are brought to light. And then we reflect the light and become lights ourselves. That was the last verse uh, we read uh, in Ephesians. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. The sleeper rises from the dead when Jesus shines on him and his life becomes light. His life becomes a herald, a testimony, a call, a warning, a light itself. And that's what this night in Luke's gospel was the beginning of. This 
night with the shepherds tending their flocks, oblivious to what's going on, and suddenly the angels appear before them. This is God's light interrupting the darkness. As, as second, uh, Peter, Peter says in his second epistle, he says, the day star has risen, that first, that first light letting you know that the rising of the sun is coming. That is what has happened. In, the, in that pasture, bathed in light in the middle of the night, this, this event that is unimaginable, impossible in the days before electricity, the magnificent, luminous brightness of God's glory shrouds his angelic hosts and announces that the Savior is here. The kingdom of light is here. The days of darkness are done. Now... Just as on the first day of creation and on the night of Messiah's birth, God continues. The light continues to shine. He speaks and light shines in the heavens. And we are the people of day. We are the people of light who reflect the light, who pursue the light, who draw near to the light and reflect the light to the world. We're not people of shadows. We're not people of night. We're not people who are ashamed of what we are or what we do. We, we're not people who have to look over both shoulders before we speak and act. That's another good little tip. If you've got to look over your shoulder before you say something, you probably, you probably shouldn't be saying it. If you have to look around before you do something, it's, it's, it's probably not a thing that, uh, uh, that is pleasing to God. We, we don't share in darkness. We rebuke the darkness with the light. And when we do, the light shines. We even imitate God speaking the light into darkness. When we speak the truth, when we speak his words, we are saying, let there be light. Here, we're speaking the word of light and there is light by the blessing of God's Holy Spirit. This Christmas, invite the warm, life-giving, illuminating light of the kingdom to, to shine in every corner of your heart, of your home, of your relationship, of your affections, your pursuits, your enjoyments. Open it up and reveal it to the light and say, does this reflect and shine or is it burned up and consumed and withered? And does it look disgusting in the light of the gospel and the light of Jesus. We don't live in the darkness anymore. The light is increasing all the time. You cannot get away from the light. So then expose all works of darkness, rebuke them and embrace the light. Rejoice that the light is shining into the darkness, that the day star has appeared. So rejoice this Christmas in the light that has dawned. Let us give thanks. Father, we praise you for Jesus and we praise you for the light that you have spoke into the world and continue to, uh, to shine through your word and through your Holy Spirit and through your people, the church. Father, may we not shroud or conceal or detract from that light, but may we be glorious in reflecting it and may we humble ourselves uh, before it to remove all uh, the works of darkness and to embrace the kingdom of light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.